Welcome to Cedar Mill. If you're visiting with us, we are so glad you are here. We're a community of faith. Oh, community that kicks water bottles around. Sorry. Community of faith, love, and hope. We believe that the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, changes everything, orients us in a new direction towards God, trusting Him, living with Him, also creating a new community characterized by love, and we are sent out as well on mission to to partner with God in bringing hope to the world. So, so glad you are here. Welcome if you are visiting, and uh, just want to say uh, we're glad you're here. Now, if you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to continue looking at uh, the book of Ephesians, um, particularly marriage, uh, as we are in the second week of three on our little mini-series on marriage in the book of Ephesians. So important, so many fundamental teachings about marriage right here in this book. So, you guys ready for that? You excited to talk about marriage for the morning? All right. So, uh, you know, one of the things that is, uh, that's always fun is uh, this passage in particular, one of my favorites, this passage just always, to me, seems like one of those places that reminds me that our, our job of growing is never done. Um, let, let me explain why. Uh, so this week, I came down with the flu, which was like awesome, right? Two o'clock on Tuesday, I text Lauren, I'm like, I am not doing good. And unu- like, kind of out of character for her, she's like, you should come home and just like go to bed. Uh, you know, because usually it's just like, come home and like, talk to me, hang out with me. Uh, so it's like, just go to sleep. And I, so I did. And, and, and then, you know, you have that lead up to vomiting is always so fun, right? So, oh, it's the worst, isn't it? Some of you, some of you guys are like, why did I come to church today? I'm, send me home. I'm blessed. End in prayer. No, uh, so, you know, just awful Tuesday and kind of recovering Wednesday. And my wife was so compassionate and gracious, took care of, the whole family, six-week-old, two-year-old, five-year-old, and 30-year-old, you know, all, she just took care of us and just was amazing. And, uh, and of course, by Thursday morning, I'm back up on my feet. I'm, like, ready to go. And sure enough, like, I start being all rude and stuff because I, I'm getting all self-absorbed in my stress because I've got this sermon to prepare on loving our wives. <laughs> Dang it. Like, every time. So, you know... Anyway, it's, it's what an irony, right? Uh, it's just another reminder, no matter how good things seem, right, the, the biblical idea of marriage is that God is always drawing us to better, right? No matter how good things, God, how, how good things seem, he's always drawing us to become better because we're constantly changing, we're becoming the people God's called us to be as we respond to his grace in our lives. And, and the truth is the best litmus test for who we really are and how mature we are and kind of where we are in relation to God is who we are in relationship to those we are closest to. Amen? The best litmus test for how you're doing on character is really who you are in relationship to the people closest to you, not least marriage. And so, you know, anytime we talk about marriage, on the other hand, uh, our defenses go up, right? So in a room this big, for sure, I know a lot of defenses just went up as soon as I said we are talking about marriage because some of you are thinking I am way not comfortable dealing with my own sense of struggle in this area. Some of you are thinking God has nothing left to say to me because we are doing perfect. Right? Oh, okay, maybe not this room. So, uh, and One of the things that Paul shows us right away in the text we're going to look at today is... Uh, 
the marriage has a context. It has a context, and it's not really about how much we're succeeding or how much we're failing uh, to, to meet our own standards or the standards of others. But instead, the context of marriage is actually God's grace in our lives to make us more like himself. That's the, the bigger picture. Un- unfortunately, marriage has actually become like a bad word in our culture. For many, they're very pessimistic about marriage, right? Like we expect far too little from it. Uh, nothing good can come out of it. Others are far too idealistic uh, about marriage. Right? Some of them are pessimistic because they're too idealistic, right? We expect too much out of our partner, and then we are disappointed when they're human. Uh, others just think, altogether, let's just chuck it because the alternatives are better, right? Marriage is like this straitjacket to how I feel, and so we don't, don't want to get too in over our heads and be too committed to anything. So, anyway... As we look at scripture today, one of the things we see is that throughout, from beginning to end of scripture, marriage is spoken of with this exalted kind of language. Not to say that married folk are better than unmarried folk, not at all. In fact, what Jesus does is he, he creates uh, a pathway for singleness to become the f- first time in history a viable uh, adult um, way to live. Uh, we could talk about that another week. But what happens throughout Scripture is God uses marriage as a metaphor and as a picture for what he's actually doing for all humanity and what he's doing throughout all of history. So marriage, in fact, is used to tell a bigger story. That marriage uh, wasn't just uh, something God gave us because he thought we would like it, but in fact he gave us marriage because it's a picture of who he is himself. Right? And so the story of marriage actually kicks off in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. So you can write that down in your notes if you'd like to, or you can flip back there. But it was there that we see God has created everything, and out of everything that he's made, what, has he, what does he label it? Good. Very good. When he had finished all of his creating, he said it was very good. Now, on, uh, there's one thing that he called not good. You know what it was? What was the one not good amongst all the good? Man was alone. Right? It's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates Eve, and it's this equal partner, and, and they get, they, there's this first marriage here, and there's this wonderful poem about the union that they experience and in Genesis chapter 2. And the first thing we learn is that the gift of marriage leads to great intimacy and great partnership. It's relational. And then we see that God uh, made them to partner with him in his work in the world of subduing and, and stewarding the creation. And so we see that marriage also comes with a great, great mission. Right? So great intimacy and great partnership as well as great mission to partner with God and what he's doing. And then he gives him this wonderful mandate, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Make people, God says, right? Do that. And so there's this idea that marriage comes with the gift of great family right off the bat. And, and then they become one flesh. And it, the text says that they, they were naked and felt no shame. And, and this leads to the idea that marriage uh, brings with it the gift of great passion, right? And together, each made in God's image, Adam and Eve, man and woman, brought together to be a totally united, mutual, giving relationship. And this thing reflects God. God says, I'm like that. I'm a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who is into great family and great mission and great intimacy and great passion. This is who I am. 
And so, sounds pretty good so far, right? Like, not a bad start for marriage. Now, marriage is carried as a metaphor all the way through Scripture, and at the very end, in Revelation chapter 19, we get the culmination of marriage. And what we see there is a vision of the Apostle John, and he says, it's like there is this, this marriage, this supper, where God has gathered all people to himself, all who would embrace his son. And it's the redeemed people who, he calls, who, who are redeemed by what he calls the lamb, right? what John calls in his gospel the lamb who removes the sin of the world. And so there's this picture at the end of history that humanity has been redeemed and set right, that the barriers between us and between us and God have been removed by the Lamb. And it's this wonderful picture of shalom and right relationships. And all are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the symbol. To be invited to know God, to be close to Him, to be right with Him. Invited to share in God's eternal joy and peace. To be united as a new humanity. It's remarkable. Sounds even better, right? So this is the story of marriage from beginning to end. And so since it's the good gift of God, since it's intended to reflect who God is, then what Paul has to say about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is really important, right? So, as we work through the text today, we're going to look at three questions. Where on earth is the power for marriage? How do we do it in a way that honors God and also yields joy? Also, what what's what's the place... Uh, What are the places within marriage? What's the place of the husband? We talked a bit last week about the wife to a certain extent. And this week then we're also going to look at the pattern for the husband. How how in the world are husbands supposed to live? Now, uh, let's begin looking at the power for marriage. And it, it actually is more than just the power for marriage. It's the power for relationships. So if you have a Bible, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. Let's take a look at the text. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is uh, the context for what Paul is about to say Regarding marriage. Now, a lot of marriage talks, if they're from the Bible at all, begin in verse 22. Wives submit to husbands, right? We just think. It jumps in. It starts there. But in fact, the, the language has, the, this thought starts back in verse 18. In fact, the, the text doesn't even literally say wives submit to husband. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to husbands, husbands love their wives. And so it's a thought that starts all the way back up in chapter, or in verse 18. Paul says there, be filled by the Spirit. Now, something that we usually interpret to be like getting weird, right? Or like people who maybe speak with the gift of tongues or something like that. But in reality, the phrase literally means be filled by means of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God is like a vat or a container who pours out fullness into our lives. The question should be, full of what? (laughs) What are we full of? You may know. Um, I, I can't answer that for you. <laughs> Some of you, like, that crossed the line. Sorry. It's in, I'm dealing with the text. All right, so, Bible church. <laughs> I'm losing credibility quick. All right, let's, let's regain this. All right. So he says, be filled by means of the Spirit. Full of what? 
If you are reading Ephesians, and I hope you are, please read it every week. You can read the thing in 15 minutes, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 6. It's, it is a quick read. Uh, I don't necessarily encourage reading it quickly. But if you are reading it and you're paying attention to the words Paul's using in this book, he uses the word full a lot, doesn't he? He uses the word filled a lot. And so every time that he mentions the idea of full or filling or fullness, Christ is right there. That Christ is actually the one who brings fullness into whatever is being filled. Okay, so if you start back at the beginning, Christ at the fullness of time unites all things to him. Uh, uh, Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and is the head of the church. Don't miss that. Wow. The fullness of his body. He's the one who fills all in all. Uh, Go to Colossians. It is by him and for him that all things are made. Interesting. Not only that, Paul prays in Ephesians 3.19 that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the prayer of Paul in Ephesians. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Which happens then, Paul works out in chapter 4, as the church exercises its gifts in love Uh, until in 4.13 he says we all attain to unity and grow up to the measure of the fullness of Christ. So when we talk about being filled by means of the Spirit, what Paul is saying is this is about the person who is responsive to the work of the Spirit of God in their life in such a way that they become more and more full of Jesus. That they begin to think like Jesus and care about what Jesus cares about. Be broken and weep over the things that Jesus is broken over. That they rejoice over the things that Jesus rejoices in. And so the Spirit is the power for marriage. It's the power for parenting. It's the power for work. Right? These relationships that are talked about here in Ephesians 5. And before I go further into how this works in our actual relationships, let's explore just again for a second, what is the Holy Spirit? Who's the Spirit? What's, what's he about? Uh, so let's roll back in our scriptures just a little bit. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. I'll throw it up on the screen. You can write it down and go read it at home later. But Ezekiel 36 is this wonderful promise where God promises his people that uh, one day he would bring the reality of salvation and would do something utterly new that he had not done before. Look at verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. He's speaking to people dispersed through exile. Right? Historically, the people of God got deported out to the empires of Assyria and then Babylon and later Persia kind of took over. And they're out and they're dispersed. And he says, I'm going to gather you. In fact, I'm, I'm going to gather my people from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So what's the promise? The promise is at one point God would send his spirit. He'd regather his people, reconstitute his people and, and that during that time he would cleanse us from unrighteousness and wickedness, draw us back from false gods to the one living God and that He would wipe away evil without wiping away people. And he'd do this by giving a new heart with a new love and new affections and new loyalties, which would be synonymous with a new spirit in us. And that would yield to 
not hardened hearts like stone, but soft hearts like flesh, people responsive to God himself. Now, later in John chapter 16, Jesus speaks of the same spirit, the same presence of God come to renew his people. And he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them why it's a good thing that he's going to ascend to be with the Father, this picture of his his reign and rule over all things. And he's saying, it's good that I'm going to leave. and I'm going to depart because I'm going to send my spirit. And he says this to his disciples in John 16, 12. It's up on the screen as well. I have much more to say to you, right? More than you can now bear about the spirit. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Fascinating. So the Spirit of God comes, gives us new heart, new desires, new affections, makes us responsive to God, and makes known to us the things of Jesus. Which is exactly what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. That we would have power together with all the saints to grasp, right? To comprehend the love of Christ in all its dimensions. Its height, width, breadth, depth, all of it. To get it in such a way that we're grasped by it. And that word grasped or comprehend is actually used in the Old Testament for when an army would sack a city. Right? Like, do you get it? Like, have you sacked a city kind of get it? Right? That's what Paul is talking about here. I want you to really, truly take hold of it and get it in such a way that you can no longer shrug off truth. That, that the love of God would reverberate through your whole body such that you can no longer ignore it. So the Spirit gives us a new heart with new desires and He takes the work of Jesus and makes it stick to us. And that's the powerhouse for the Christian life. It's the powerhouse for the Christian life. And it's the powerhouse for every relationship. And if it's the powerhouse for every relationship, it's the powerhouse for your marriage. The powerhouse for your marriage is not your next vacation. That will be nice. But that's not going to be the thing that reunites you. The powerhouse for your marriage is not the raise you hope to get. The powerhouse for your marriage is not whatever your list is. Unless it's the Spirit of God making the things of Jesus stick because he's given you new desires and a new heart. And out of that, you're able to live in a renewed way. Now, Paul gives a list of five things that the Spirit does. When he fills us, we know what it looks like. And he says it, it, it's five things. We, we speak in such a way that worship just flows out of us. We, we speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That, that's like, what? Weird, right? No, it's you, in your language... Because you're filled by the Spirit, just worship exudes out of you and you sing and make melody. Well, that's because joy is constantly flowing in your life. Giving thanks always because you get that grace has made you, right? Not your own merit and effort. And finally, the fifth element uh, or indication that the Spirit is filling you with the fullness of who Jesus is, is that you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We've talked about this now for a couple of weeks and this is a really remarkable truth. Right? The reverence for Christ is the idea that I'm so over, overshadowed and overpowered by awe for who God is, what his love is, his tenderness and his mercy to me, that I can't help but be different. And so because of reverence for Christ, I do Jesus-like things. I, I hold off on my vacation and instead help my neighbor with 
their medical bills. Or I, I, I hold off on running ahead to my next thing and first stop to listen to my friend who's got a, a serious need. We submit to each other in myriad ways. And there's thousands or maybe infinite ways that we submit to one another in our marriages, right? And husbands and wives are both included in verse 21. The people who are doing the submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so they share this common call to be Jesus-like and giving preference to the other person, working for their good. Now, keep in mind that submitting doesn't mean that I just roll over, I'm a doormat and I do whatever you ask, and I enable all your bad behaviors just because I do what you want me to do. That's not submitting in the proper sense. Submitting in the reverence for Christ sense is that I actually set aside my own comfort, that I set aside my own thing, and I actually work to help you in your own growth and your own experience of who Christ is. Right? Um, now, one of the things that regularly thwarts my submitting in, in mutual ways in my own marriage there's this little thing that gets in the way called me. Right? Like, I keep getting in the way of this submission thing. Um, and and it, it happens because I put myself at the center of myself. And what, what ends up happening is I let my stress and my own worries and my insecurities creep in and take center stage. And the result is that I become absorbed in myself. And so there's too much of my old self crowding out uh, uh, any ability to pay attention to other people's selves. And so that's why the Holy Spirit is so important, because he comes in and gives us a new heart, a new self with new desires. And this new self is no longer at the center, but Christ is at the center. I'm still me, but I'm ordered now in the right way. I'm I'm a new me in Christ, where Christ is at the center. Right? And so stress now has a context. It's God's kingdom where I realize that even the, the birds and the flowers are clothed. Right? Or my worries have a new context. They are less powerful because there's a king who's more powerful. My, my insecurities are disarmed because of the love and mercy and care of this king who says your insecurities pale in comparison to my affection for you. And so on and so forth. And so when you live like this, it gives you an ability to be ruthless with your own self-absorption. You can admit that you're self-absorbed because you know God's grace is there to pick you up, not to beat you down. And then you can actually be ruthless with rooting it out of your own life. Because you no longer need to be center stage. You're happy to be upstaged by others because Jesus has given you a new ability to be concerned for others. And so... Uh, this weekend, actually yesterday, I was working on my yard, and uh, I've got this neighbor who's got these blackberry bushes that have completely overtaken like a whole like sector of yard, right? And so they're creeping through my fence, and it's making my lawn ugly because I can't get to it. And like grown men have wandered into that part of my yard and never been heard from again. Um, like all of my son, like it's a it's a like a vortex. It sucks all of my kids' toys into it. I'm like it's gone forever, kids. And so, anyways, I'm out there and I'm like trying to cultivate my lawn. I'm trying to make it beautiful, right? I don't, I, I don't like it ugly. And so I'm out there and I'm trying to cut the lawn. So I've got to cut down all of these, these briars, right? These blackberry bushes. And, and they're painful and it's ugly. And it dawned on me as I'm cutting this stuff down. I'm like, this is what self-absorption is like. It's, man, it... It's painful for everybody that touches you, and gosh, it's dangerous to yourself. It is. It's just like that. Um, 
And holiness, growing in Christ, likeness, becoming more like Christ and growing into the person God's created you to become is like this. And too often we associate holiness with negative stuff, like this is all the stuff I'm against or don't do. But in reality, I would have never started cutting away at that stuff unless I had a vision of what needed to be there, something far more beautiful, right? And so Paul's saying, look, there's this reverence for Christ. There's this vision for what could be in your life. So you're actually motivated to cut down the ugly, painful, dangerous stuff because instead you're trying to cultivate something that offers blessing and peace, and it, it, not only for yourself, but the other people around you. And you seek to bless other people. Now, let's apply this to marriage for a second. Um, there are plenty of us, right? We've got a list of problems that the other person has, right? Some of you have written them down. Some of you have them laminated in your pocket, right? In your room, in, in the room today. You're like, yes, he needs to work on this, 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 and this. I've told him many times. I don't know, I don't know why he hasn't fixed it. He always tells me he wants to fix things. Fix yourself. Well, so we can approach marriage in a couple of ways. We can approach it in the first way, the kind of me marriage approach. This says the end goal of marriage is my own personal fulfillment and happiness. Uh, and so, right, which is a dominant view in our culture, by the way, about what marriage is for. Right? Now, if we can approach it that way, every problem, every struggle, every conflict, the most fundamental issue is the other person, right? It's their, their barbs and briars. And if they would just be ruthless about cutting out their own stuff, we'd be fine. I've been telling them, right? And so, and so we see problems, and what we, and, and instead of actually seeing the problem for what we are both contributing, what ends up happening is we just see all the problems of the other person creating more problems for me. Right? You're getting in the way of my own personal fulfillment and happiness. And so, what we really need to see is that the biggest problem in our marriage is our own self-absorption. Now, here's the thing. I'm responsible for one person. Me. I can't control my wife. And if you have a habit of trying to control your spouse, you need to repent of that. Because that's the easy route. And so I'm going to try to deal with problems by getting them to fix it instead of me working on the stuff I contribute. Um, And so we have to see that the most fundamental problem is actually my own self-centeredness. That the most serious problem I face is my own self-centeredness. Right? And the most problem, serious problem they face is their own self-centeredness. Right? But together, if I'm constantly shifting the blame, we're never going to make progress. If I'm owning it and taking responsibility for it, I actually end the cycle. Now, let me make a quick caveat, and it's a very important caveat, and that is that there are marriages where the most serious problem is, in fact, the other person. There are marriages where the most serious problem is an addiction or a, an abusive character. And for that, i got to say, you need to get safe and you need to get help. Right? But for, I would say for the, the average marriage where there is not um, a, a complete, unrepentant, sinful, abusive attitude, the average marriage, right, most of us, if we approach it as if the most serious problem, the most fundamental problem is my own self-centeredness, it will yield some pretty amazing fruit. Let me tell you, uh, the, the most beautiful thing about a marriage where two people actually are most ruthless with their own self-absorption is that it will also yield two people who are the most gracious about the other person's self-absorption. Do you see what I'm talking about here? 
The thing we need to do is to be utterly ruthless with our own self-centeredness and utterly gracious with the other person's. And when that happens, rather than being two people who are self-absorbed, you're two people who are uh, taking uh, Christ adoration to be the most serious thing that they need to do. And it, in fact, gives way to enjoy the most mutually giving relationship. You see what I'm saying here? This is utterly important. You cannot submit to each other out of reverence for Christ until you grasp that. Now, um, the power for marriage is that, that the Spirit of God comes in, gives us new desires, and then we are able, out of that, to root out our own self-centeredness and instead move towards Christ-centeredness that actually yields fruit and love and blessing to the other person. Now, Paul keeps going in this text, and he begins to assign husbands and wives these places within a bigger metaphor of marriage. Now, it is a metaphor for Christ and the church. And he says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the, your, excuse me, your, oh, ah, excuse me, your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and even as Christ is the head of the church, his own body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their own husbands. Now, here's what it should be a little weird to us. Right? Paul goes, the husband's the head. Like, what's that about? What? Does that mean he is like, over the wife? Does that mean, what is that about? In our culture, if you look at an average sitcom, uh, the woman is fit, powerful, articulate, responsible, a little bit naggy, and the guy is always like lazy, kind of ugly, a little bit overweight, and usually just like disconnected. And, and this is this kind of common portrayal of marriage, and we'd go like, why, that guy should be the head of nothing. Right? Except for like Couch Potatoes Anonymous, right? It's so like, that, no, no way. Now what's going on? Why, why does Paul say this? Again, go back to the metaphor. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say, I want your marriages to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. This beautiful union between humanity and the Messiah. Now, G, now husbands, don't get a Messiah complex. You are not Jesus. You're supposed to be like him. Okay, so... You're not the savior of your wife. Just Jesus is. Okay? Now, where was I? This is super important. Okay. The the word head has been so misconstrued. What it really means is the idea of being responsible for something. Right? The husband has a leadership role here, as well as the role of nurturer and protector, and it's a responsibility to serve and to empower and to lift up the other person. Um, th- this is this is actually really really important. This is not about authority. It's about responsibility. It's about uh, being the initiator and the pursuer of what Christ wants in the relationship. Go back. Everything everything about marriage needs to go back through the lens of who Jesus is. Look at Mark tap, chapter ten, verse forty-two. How does Jesus talk about leadership? He says, you know uh, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, that their great ones exercise authority over. But it shall not be among you. Right? Whoever would be great among you must become servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Paul redefines leadership along the same lines that Jesus did. Right? It's about having the responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture. That's the agenda that's set for husbands from the get-go. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Live with her, alongside her. Right? Live, do life together. 
and treat them with respect. Right? And he says, as the weaker partner, that's not about putting people, women down. He's actually saying, like, get, like, pay attention to where they're vulnerable. Right? What, especially, think about first century society who are vulnerable people. Think about 21st century society. Where are we vulnerable? So come alongside, be respectful. And he says this because you're co-heirs to the gift of eternal life. So there's total equality in Christ, absolute equality. On the, and so you're partners in mission, partners in intimacy, partners in passion, partners in family. And at the same time, there's a unique responsibility that the husband's given. Okay, guys? You ready to embrace that? Because now Paul's about to tell you how to do it. All right. So many guys take pick pick the wrong mission. I feel like their mission is to provide the latest and the greatest, or it's to be the successful image that our culture portrays, or whatever it is, and they feel like failures because they're not achieving that mission. You actually, by the power of the Spirit, can achieve your God-given mission to be the head in this kind of self-giving, utterly respectful, nurturing way. Now. Uh, 42 words are given to the woman in in Ephesians chapter 5 and 116 to the husband, all right? So Paul is like, I'm putting the hammer down on the dude, okay? Here's what I need you to do. I need you to take some responsibility. That's what Paul's saying, right? 116 words given here to direct the husband. Now, I don't want to preach over wives. I don't want to preach over the single folk in the room because we all have something to learn about loving like Christ loves. So tune in to what God wants to say to you. Guys, pay specific and particular attention though too. Okay? Because here's the pattern for husbands. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the pattern of love. Love like Jesus. Love in a way that you give yourself away. This is the call of God on every husband. And it's a high call and it's a joyful call. And oh man, is it a fulfilling call. It's also, it's a hard call. Right? And so sometimes we shrink from it. But the truth is God's empowered you for this. He hasn't called you to do anything he hasn't equipped you for. Because I've given you the spirit. I've given you the resources. So love your wives in the same way that Christ has loved the church. Right? He gave himself. Think about the way that Christ gave. He took the initiative. Initiative. He wasn't passive. He gave his presence. When you come home, are you with your wife? Or are you still at work? Are you somewhere else? Are you thinking in ways that keep you absent relationally, even though you're physically present? Come and be present. Christ gave his energy, right? Save your best stuff for your family. Christ gave his focus. Put the phone down. Set the laptop aside. Turn off the TV. You will be okay. I promise it is not your oxygen. Oxygen is your oxygen. Right? <laughs> Just breathe. Turn off the TV. Focus on her. He gave his life. Right? So you come in, you listen, and you share yourself. Right? It's not a one-way relationship and you connect. Because um, I just saw a new marriage stat about w- women are leaving marriages left and right for the fundamental reason that they're not feeling deep connection with their husbands. Women are, amen, right? Husbands, right? Like, this is, this is what you're called to do, to be connectors with her, right? 
And so this love like Christ is a cross-shaped love. And here's what, me, what, what I mean by that. Paul says that he gave himself up, right? In other words, there's sacrifice involved. It's, I'm willing to put off my comfort in order to bring her blessing and value. And uh, I, there's wonder in this calling. You guys, don't miss it. This is not just like a burden, like, hey, you need to just suck it up and have an awful time loving your wife. That is not what Paul's saying. Some of you guys hear that, right? You're like, cross shape, there was blood, that hurt. Well, yeah, there's some, there's self-sacrifice involved, but ultimately it's self-giving. And, and what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus on the cross is he did it for the joy set before him. There's joy in this. And let me tell you, it's fulfilling to actually love your wife this way because she feels so valued. Because she is like, she glows because you've given yourself to her. And that's just a fulfilling, fulfilling reality. I, I, like, I never regret setting aside my thing to love my wife. I just don't regret it. I regret, and I apologize frequently for the times I say, I, just, I made a call there to just completely be self-centered, and it didn't bring anybody blessing, right? So um, this is a joyful thing. It honors our wife. I don't know a, a single woman on the planet. I don't know every woman on the planet, but I, it goes without saying. But I don't know any woman who would ever say, I, I am so bummed that my husband just kept asking how are you doing? And then he listened. I hated that. <laughs> or he keeps asking me, verbally, text message, email, is there anything you need? Can I help? I just, it's so annoying. Right? It just, that just doesn't happen. Like, find somebody who is deeply annoyed and affront, unaffronted by that. Uh, I... We, we, they're lying. Okay? So, um, so we come in and we say, hey, look, I, I just, tell me how I can help you. Frequent question in my house. How you doing, babe? And, hey, what do you need right now? She usually has an answer. Right? Some, I mean, sometimes it's like, nothing. Great. Other times it's like, change this thing. It stinks. Right? Like, <laughs> on it. Like, dude, my mission, like, from the time I get home, to the time I like fall asleep, to connect with each person in my family. My butt does not hit a chair until we sit down for dinner as a family. Let me tell you, I'm tired when I come home. Like I would love to plop down on the couch and completely check out with a book and beverage and just be like, I'm done for the day. But there's nothing more rewarding than coming home and actually connecting and partnering together as we work together to connect with our family and bless our kids and discuss what's going on throughout our day. It's wonderful. Like, and, and she glows as a result of it. And so, you know, honestly, that's, that's, our, that's our mission, guys. Like, we, we should be expended, but we should be completely filled up with the reality that we've connected with every person under our roof at the end of the day. That's what, that's what they're longing for. And nobody can replace you. No vacation can replace that. No amount of quality time can replace quantity time. And we just... We need to live that way. And there's all kinds of confusion about like what a man is these days. And I'm just, I, I have this rejection of macho ideas of what a man should be. Well, partly because like, I'm a book dude, you know? I was like, I'd like to just sit and read, you know? Like, 
I, I would also love to be, be like, yeah, let's go shoot guns and stuff. I'd like to be better than you without even having practice because I read about it. But honestly, uh, I, my, th- this is a great definition of, of a man. Uh, from, I got it from one of my friends who is a very wise guy. And I'll, I'll, he, just, he says, this real man accepts responsibility. Think about Adam. The very first thing he did was rejected his own responsibility. The antithesis, the true man, the Christ man. And for that matter, the Christ woman, who is a mature adult, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, rejects passivity, serves lovingly, honors authority, and expects the reward of God. And so you know what? It is not the exclusive job of our wives to parent our kids and manage the household. We need to be at work from the time we are in the door to the time we fall asleep. At work, loving, adding value, and connecting. And it is so fulfilling all right, we could keep talking about that for a long, long time. But the pattern of Christ-like love goes way further than self-giving. It also goes up into building up our spouse toward what God has made her to be, seeing her for who she is in Christ, and just encouraging that and yielding yourself to her for that matter. Look at verse 26. That he, that is Christ, might sanctify her, the church, this is our model, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that she he might present the church to himself in splendor or radiant, if you're reading the NIV, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Every guy I disciple, I, I, just, I have to give him this axiom for like his mission on, on relating to whatever female he is around. Like Your mission is this. You need to return her to God in better shape than you found her. So if you're dating her, that's your mission. Return her to God better than you found her. Right? Don't take her for granted. Don't use her. Don't don't cause her to have wounds. Like help her become whole as a husband. Your mission. She's on lease, you guys. You don't get to like. She's not yours. You don't possess. Right? She's Christ's. What's the deal? You return her back to God at the end of her life in better shape than you found her. That's your mission. Pure and simple. Uh, not easy, but simple. And so we constantly need to ask the question, what does it look like to help lead her there? Help facilitate that. Now, I've always been confused about, like, what does spiritual leadership look like in my home? Like, I have been told that it's not coming home with a sermon. Just FYI, don't preach a sermon. It's not 6 a.m. prayer meetings, right? Not not in a house with three kids, trust me. Uh, However, I asked my wife on the way back from the beach the other weekend, like, hey, could you tell me again what leadership feels like? She just said this. Honestly, it's a constant conversation with me. It's, it's you just pursuing uh, me and just asking and checking in and saying, like, what, what, what do you feel like God's saying to us about our finances and about our, who our kids are becoming and about our walks with Christ? It's constant conversation. It's that connection. And, and I have this joke about, like, every once in a while, Lauren, like, just, like, dumps her soul out. Um, she's kind of a private person, so like every once in a while, like we'll be sitting on the couch, and like out of nowhere, there's this like eruption of like all this stuff God's been doing in our life, and like we, so we you pause 24, and you're like, oh, tell me about that, and it's it's such an honor to be able to be trusted with her soul, it's such an honor to be trusted to to walk with her and pray with her, and and that's what. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to have all the answers. We're not called to be uh, more mature because, frankly, guys, when we recognize where our wives are way more mature than us, which is in a lot of areas, uh, and we yield to that and we learn from it, that's good leadership, right? 
So uh, it also means that we set the example, that we're willing to take the high road and say, I want to lead my family in repentance, so I'm going to be the first person to confess my sins. To say, I'm sorry, I raised my voice and that was not in love. I wasn't warning you of a fire. I was being an an idiot. Uh, We're the first person uh, to be gracious because we want to lead our family in forgiveness. We're the first person to be transparent because we want to lead our family in character. On and on it goes. And uh, and you might be feeling just utterly defeated there. Like, I don't know how to do that. One simple way to be to, to lead your wife to Christ on a daily basis, to bring the gospel to the center, is just a simple practice of budgeting together. Like budget your time, your energy, and your money together. Make that a mutual conversation and say, where are we going to invest our time, money, and energy, particularly in like personal time with God and with church? Like we need to be absolutely abiding in Christ, hearing from him in our regular lives and, and a line item for church. We have to be involved in the community of faith, okay? And just work at that together and say, where's this happening in our lives? That's a great practice to just get started on that. And then just keep asking the question, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your walk with Christ? It's our job to, to pursue our wives' hearts, right? And ultimately to point them to Jesus because he's the only one that can fulfill, fulfill her deepest needs as well as ours. Now the pattern continues in verse 28. He says, in the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. Now he says in the first part, love in such a way that you give yourself. Now he's saying love in such a way that you nurture and that you cherish. Love her like you love yourself, like you love your own body. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we're members of his body. How are you guys doing on loving yourselves? Anybody, like, when you have to go to the bathroom, like, you just don't? You don't give in, like when you're hungry, you're like, not going to eat. I'm doing something else. Like we are awesome at taking care of ourselves, right? Like you got a need, you take care of it. And so we nourish and cherish our own bodies. And Paul's saying nourish and cherish your wife. Because guess what? You're one with her and she actually is your own body. She is an extension of your very self. So take care of her like it. One of the ways we can do this is honestly with our words. Build up our wives with our words. Nurture and care, cherish with our words. And we say, like at home, uh, when when our kids are like being disrespectful, we're the first person to jump in and say, hey, you can't talk to my wife like that. I, I made you. And you, you're going to have to come through me if you want to talk to her like that. It's not appropriate. Or we, we broker the healing and the reconciliation. We step in and we love and we lift up and we encourage and we affirm and we're like, hey, you know what you're really great at? I just saw this again today. And we tell her, right? I mean, obviously you should be telling her that you love her. Duh. But just in case that wasn't, I threw that in there as a freebie. All right. So uh, the, the other thing that happens too is outside of the home. How do we use our words? Do our wives actually trust that when we talk about her, we're not complaining? I, I'm so... I'm so sick of hearing couples complain about each other. Right? Like, I'm a pastor, so like part of it is like, it's like that's the beginning of counseling, right? Like, okay, I hear you have some complaints. We're going to start pulling up your own briar patches, but all right. But how often in our culture do we just we hear it as normal to just kind of cut down the other person? It just should not be in a Christian marriage. Right? We should honestly be lifting up our, our partners with our words. That when we talk about them, we shouldn't be talking about their weaknesses, but about their strengths. 
They should trust us with that outside the home. Um, the list could go on, but the onus is actually on the husband to ask his wife on a regular basis, what do you need from me? Right? We ask our bodies, and our bodies are telling us we need to ask our wives, what do you need from me? And then here's the trick, okay? Let me tell you from doing it wrong. Um, when you ask, you listen, right? It's not like you kind of record your voice like on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it's like you can just, what do you need from me? And then like you keep doing your own thing, and like she just keeps hearing this, your voice asking what... No, you listen, but here's, here's the kicker. When she tells you, don't be defensive about it. And don't argue with her. Because you asked her. And it's her answer that you said you were looking for. Right? So this is what we're called to do. What do you, what do you need from me? I want to nourish and cherish you. So what do you need from me? I'm not going to be defensive when you tell me because it probably involves some change on my part. But guess what? Welcome to being a disciple. The whole thing is about change. All right? Let's keep going. The reality, though, for this whole marriage thing has a bigger context. A much bigger context. See, marriage serves a bigger purpose than our own satisfaction, though it yields great satisfaction. Right? Really, the whole marriage covenant points us to the ultimate matter of our significance. The ultimate matter of the real marriage. The ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This love that we're called to is a leave everything behind kind of love. And it's a love that's constantly sustained by the greatest love. See, ultimately, husbands are called to leave everything behind, to be totally committed, to forsake all others. That's in the vows. And to be all in. Right? They get our whole selves. It's a a committed kind of thing. C.S. Lewis said this about, uh, about divorce. He says, it's really more like amputating your own legs than it is dissolving a business partnership. And he's right. And it's because not only is this commitment for commit, about commitment, it's about union. You see, we're called to be united, to leave father and mother, to be united with our spouse. And so when that breaks apart, we feel like we've been amputated because this covenant is meant to reflect God's covenant with us, which is a forever covenant. And so we, we be, we're careful, right? Now, this union that we're a part of points to a bigger union, the union of Christ and his church, because the story is that Christ is calling us up into himself to be united to himself. The God of the universe is uniting people to himself in intimate relationship where you're known and loved and secure in a way that you cannot possibly imagine otherwise. And so whether you're a husband or a wife or a single person living in community here, what we have to learn from here is that if we want to love like Christ loved, which we are all told to do in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, if we want to love like that, then we have to see ourselves as who we are, which is the bride of Christ, that we are those loved by the true bridegroom, that we're the beloved of God. You see, Jesus left his Father and he came to hold fast to us. He left his father to hold fast to us to unite him to ourself. You see, even back in Genesis, when the foundation for marriage was laid, it was already pointing ahead to our redemption and our salvation. See, you, you can't live 
the way Paul's telling us to live, unless you're, you grasp this, this love of Christ for us, that, that Jesus left to come to the far country to prepare a bride, that is, a people for himself for all eternity. And he had to pay the ultimate bride price. He gave himself. Why? So that he could make clean what is soiled by sin and shame. and So that he could set apart a people that had lent themselves out to false gods. So that he could forgive and restore the broken and recall the loss. And he did it through his death on a cross. What could be better than knowing that your significance and your value and your worth actually doesn't come from how your spouse feels about you or how you feel about them or from your status as married or single or from how good you are or how much you failed but actually comes from the God who says, I love you because I love you. That I've gone the distance and I've paid the price and I've done this all in order to be with you. I love you and I show it by giving myself. I love you and I show it by nurturing and cherishing you. This is the God we come to know in Jesus. And when you grasp this love, when you get that's the story that you are a part of and that you live in, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. It gives you an ability to move past your own self-centeredness. It gives you an ability to actually forgive wrongs because you're forgiven. It gives you a motivation to give yourself in love because God's love has been given to you. And only when you grasp that, when you comprehend it, when you know it because the Spirit's made it known in your life, when you know it at the core, you're able to live out of it. And that's the reality. Only when you see yourself that way, you'll be able to live in the, the kind of marriage and kind of community and kind of relationships that Paul's talking about here. And so, do you grasp the mystery this morning? Does that mystery grab hold of you? Do you get who you are because of who Jesus is and what he's done? I encourage you today to embrace this message, to embrace the Savior and say, I need that love. I need to be united to God through Jesus. And as we prepare to take communion, it's a meal that actually anticipates the great coming marriage feast. Right? That one day there will be a feast of joy where humanity is gathered together at the throne of God and we eat in fellowship with Christ himself. And this meal anticipates it. It recalls what has been paid, that Christ's body has been given and Christ's blood has been shed to make this possible. And so as we prepare for communion, let's read from Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9, of the future healing that allows us to sip on joy today. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready, and he has, it, is, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have invited us to your table. Not just as those you save, but as those you join to yourself like a bride to a groom. Thank you for giving us the ultimate gift of yourself. 
We're nourished by your presence at this table. And we ask that you send us out empowered to love in the exact way you loved us. May it bring peace and healing to the world as we mirror you in our relationships with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to come and take the bread and the cup and take it at your own pace as we worship Christ together.